0: Welcome to the British History Podcast, my name is Jamie. This is episode 34, Cribs, the Britannia edition. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Julie, Jason, and Hubert for signing up already. Now, today, we're going to be talking about what life in Roman Britannia was like. We're going to talk essentially about what was lost. We already know about the Hypocasts, but we don't know too much about what life was like for the Britons, especially following the occupation of Britannia by the Romans. The Britons would end up finding themselves being hurtled through immense changes. Industries would be established that would transform the productivity of their island, but at the same time would expose them to greater risks of accidents and toxins. They would see advancements in medicine, but they would also be exposed to new diseases such as leprosy and environmental ailments. And realistically, the average Briton wouldn't have much access to the new medical treatments, only the new maladies. That's because, generally, the new medical treatments would be restricted to either the immigrants to Britannia or the extreme upper class of Britannia. Furthermore, the Britons would probably experience epidemics for the first time. The Romano-British way of life would involve greater clusters of population. People would live closer together than they had at any other time in their history, and diseases thrive in conditions like that. So chances are, there were epidemics. But on the flip side, there would be an increase in personal hygiene on the island. The Romans, compared to much of the rest of the world, were rather fastidious, despite the disgusting concept of the toilet sponge, which we discussed months ago by now. (laughs) Remember that horrific implement? The sponge on a stick that you dip in the water? Ugh. Anyway, so in addition to all of this, the Britons were also thrust into a multi-ethnic world with soldiers, diplomats, auxiliaries, traders, and all manner of other people coming to the island from around the empire. There were strange gods, strange cultures, strange languages. People were writing things down, which for centuries was generally avoided by the Britons. And one of the more jarring facts of this new life the Britons were thrust into was that there was a weird sort of prejudice that they were subjected to. The Romans had a sneaking admiration for the rebellious Britons, seeing them as possessing virtues that Rome had lost through its civilization, which, of course, is a giant boatload of passive-aggressive bigotry. But ironically, these supposed lost virtues were the same ones that Rome was actively trying to stamp out. It's almost as if the Romans were treating the Britons like misbehaving children, Oh, that's cute. I remember when I used to do that when I was young, too. But now is not the time for that behavior. You need to act like a big boy now. For those of the Britons who were aware of this bizarre dichotomy, it must have been rather frustrating. Now, for a more modern example of the sort of behavior that the Romans were engaging in, look no farther than the treatment of the Native Americans in the United States. In its early days, the U.S. operated on a campaign to eliminate Native American culture, And yet, you had this whole thing with the concept of a noble savage going on at the same time. One of the best examples of this, actually, is found in James Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohicans. However, you don't have to go back to the 1700s or 1800s. You can just go back to the 1970s and watch that famous public service announcement about littering. Does anyone remember that? You know, the one that showed a Native American with a single tear rolling down his face when he saw people disobeying litter laws? So yeah, the noble savage stuff still happens. And it was happening to the Britons under Roman rule. Anyway, let's get back to the intro. So everything about Britannia was changing, right? And not just the buildings and the laws, but everything. Even the rise of literacy brought changes. Suddenly there was graffiti, for example. Think about that. Never before in British history was graffiti a problem. And then the Romans show up. They teach the people how to read and write, and suddenly you end up with odd comments written on tiles, such as "Ostalis has gone off by himself daily for the last thirteen days." And yes, that's actually a real translation of graffiti. Now, why was that so important to write down on a tile? Who knows? But it sounds like Ostalis was probably up to some shady stuff, or maybe someone should have been minding his own business. Anyway, the point is that the Britons would have been caught in the middle of rather tempestuous changes for most of the occupation. And that's because it wasn't just the arrival of the Romans that brought change. There were also all the dramatic events we've discussed over the last 30 plus episodes, as well as the withdrawal of the Romans. Things were anything but static for these people. But I'll do my best to paint a picture of what life was probably like especially towards the end of the Romano-British period. So let's talk about what life was like. Before all this mess we've covered in prior episodes, long before the withdrawal of Rome and whatnot, classical cities flourished in Britannia, though they were certainly smaller than elsewhere on the continent. For example, Londinium at its peak had a population of only about 30,000 people. So these towns were certainly not gigantic, but they were still Roman towns. They were built on precise grids with aqueducts, well-planned streets, baths, forums, amphitheaters, graffiti, and the like. And if you were walking around the streets in one of these cities, you'd see marble-faced buildings, tiled roofs, and large monuments. And if you were lucky enough to be in a trading center such as Londinium, you'd see a greater amount of goods from around the world than you would at any other period in Britannia until around the 16th century. You'd have access to olive oil from Spain, wine from Palestine, tableware from Gaul. You'd have stuff from everywhere. At least, that's the way it was during the height of Roman Britannia. You're probably wondering why Britannia had so many trade goods and amenities, given that it was, you know, just a small province in an enormous empire, and actually it was in a far-flung territory, it was really far from Rome. So why did they have so much stuff? Well, for one, Britannia had rich metal deposits, and it was incredibly fertile. In fact, thanks to shifts in climate, there were even vineyards as far north as York. But there's another reason why there was so much trade and wealth coming to the island. And that was the presence of the military. As we've spoken about in earlier podcasts, Britannia at various times had more legions stationed there than virtually anywhere else in the empire. These legions, at least to begin with, were generally Roman, and had money to spend, and of course wanted Roman goods. So it makes sense that there would be a flourishing trade system that would bring those goods to the island. And then once the native Britons got a taste for the various goods being brought in, you'd have a pretty solid general demand for things like Spanish olive oil. Now before I get any further into this, I want to point one thing out. Before the Romans showed up, Britannia was still trading. I know I mentioned it in earlier podcasts, but I just want to reiterate that that it wasn't an island adrift and completely isolated. Britannia did have its own trade network, but once the Romans showed up, that trade network really, really expanded. So that's what I'm getting at here. Anyway, so Britannia had quickly become quite prosperous, but considering the size of the army, the resources required to supply that army, much of which would have come from local areas, the money being paid for those resources, and then the money paid to the soldiers, who, of course, would then generally spend it in Britannia, it's not hard to figure out why Britannia was thriving. Rome was dumping an immense amount of treasure into the island. And then the Brits would rudely rebel anyways. (laughs) But that's a subject we've already covered quite well, so we don't need to talk about it again. Anyway, the point is that Britannia was wealthy largely thanks to imperial coin that was either brought in through its military or was bestowed by various emperors such as Constantine the Great. Of course, this couldn't last forever. And once the troubles of the 3rd century reared their heads, what with all the barbarian problems and the civil wars, well, trade began to shrink, especially in Britannia. Consequently, populations in trade centers such as Londinium began to shrink as well. Buildings were dismantled, amenities were no longer used or maintained, and it wasn't just the trading towns that were taking a hit. There were also the small settlements along the trade routes, such as along Watling Street. When the cash flow dried up and trade disappeared, everyone felt it in some way. But that isn't to say that everything was crashing to a halt. Instead, the wealth simply moved in different directions. Large townhouses were built in the spaces that were left behind by abandoned trade infrastructure. Gardens were built, and the merchant towns were transformed. Londinium was no longer a bustling industrial trade city. Now it was focused upon the needs of the upper class and the administration. So they replaced the shops and the warehouses with buildings devoted to carrying out the affairs of the empire, as well as, of course, leisure. And it wasn't just Londinium. Cameludunum, modern-day Colchester, went through a similar change. And so did Aboricum, modern-day York. A new term came to encapsulate these administrative towns. They were called public towns. The change in trade had other effects that were more widespread. Take wine, for example. It was no longer widely available. I mean, you did have occasional vineyards, but according to all reports, British wine was pretty awful. So wine was replaced by beer, which was more easily acquired. Or take the use of olive oil. In that case, butter and lard were much easier to find. So their use began to increase. Additionally, industrious craftsmen went to work trying to make knockoff versions of products, such as tableware, that were no longer commonly imported. But they weren't able to develop the same quality nor the same quantity as was once imported but those craftsmen still at least tried. And at the dawn of the 4th century, romano britons were actively trying to return to the lost Roman age of their forefathers. There were buildings undergoing repairs, and there was also even new construction. Signs of prosperity began to become common sights in southern Britannia. And the pottery trade, thanks in part to those industrious craftsmen, started to really boom. But it was an insular trading community. Based on the record that's available, it doesn't seem that British pottery was generally exported. It was just traded around the island. And this utilitarian tableware, as well as the new British manufactured goods industry that was created, helped bring ever greater numbers of Romano-Britons into the system. The island was beginning to develop its own independent economy. And I doubt you'll be surprised to learn that its own aristocracy came with it. So the aristocracy in Britannia was growing in power. And, of course, as a result, there were a number of villas being built around this time. In fact, as many as 500 villas were built in this late era of Romano-Britannia, mostly in the lowlands. Generally, the wealthy weren't interested in building villas in the western or northern parts of Britannia, probably because those areas were a little wilder and less Romanized. And who was living in these villas? Well we're not too sure about that. It's possible that they were built by the descendants of tribal chiefs following the conquering of Britannia. Certainly the chiefs were powerful, and generally they were wealthy, and we know that the indigenous aristocracy were encouraged to spend lavishly and adopt Roman customs. So the villas might have been the residence of the descendants of those old tribal chiefs. They might have also been homes for the wealthy Gallic refugees that we think might have fled the horrors of war that were occurring on the continent. Or they might have just been homes for wealthy traders. Or prominent military veterans. We can't say for certain. But what we do know is that they were where most of the money and power on the island was concentrating. But here's the interesting thing about these villas. While some of them were out in the country thus kick-starting the concept, the English country estate, that tendency tended to fall out of favor by the 4th century. So by the 4th century, many villas were either built in or very near towns. In fact, many of the important towns had at least a dozen villas within their walls. So why the change? Why the rush to suddenly live close to town? I mean, that's a big change, right? Well, it couldn't have been due to the amenities that towns offered... That's because in many of the towns, by the time the 4th century came about, those amenities were gone. And it can't have been for financial reasons, because we already know that the economy in Britannia was in decline, and the towns were no longer the economic power centers of Britannia. And it can't have been due to social pressure to be a patron of a town. Remember that? When prominent Roman citizens would build amenities and be patrons of a town, and there was a lot of competition for that. Well, since the rise of Christianity in the empire, that had gone out of favor, since those who would usually donate to a town or a city were now donating to the church instead. So it couldn't have been that either. Nor could it have been for social reasons, such as a desire to congregate with other citizens, since many of the social amenities, such as baths and forums, were left to decay by this point in history. In fact, there is an ever-increasing amount of isolation between the wealthy and the rest of the population. So even if those forums were available, it's doubtful that the wealthy would want to use them. After all, they had retreated into their own private baths and temples, where they could have control over who could gain entrance. So now there is a very real wall between the haves and the have-nots at this point. So again, why build the villas in or near the towns? Well, I think it was essentially gentrification. The towns were economic centers in the early days of Roman Britannia due to trade. And consequently, during that period, there was a wide swath of the Romanized population who were living there. But by the 4th century, those days were over. The town still had money, but that was just because the Romanized British power structure had moved in and taken them over. In a sense, they had economic strength purely because the wealthy were living there. Look at these towns as if they were Snooky. Why is Snooky famous, right? It's hard to say. She's not an artist or an intellectual. She hasn't written a great novel or cured a disease. She's famous because she's, well, famous, right? Well, think about these towns in that light. So we've got these towns that don't have any industry, No serious manufacturing, no exports, and yet there's a lot of money in them. And the reason why wealth is concentrating there is because, well, they're perceived as wealthy. Optics over reality. So we're seeing a great deal of isolation and social stratification within the towns at this point. But actually, it's not just restricted to the towns. This was also happening out in the countryside at the same time. Greater and greater portions of land were falling into the hands of an ever-smaller group of Romanized British elite. And of course, this allowed them ever-increasing levels of control over labor, which would then push even more wealth into their hands. The end result is that most Britons were living in muddy farmsteads, while the elite were either living in or near towns or in massive country villas. And it's hard to overstate the scale of these country villas. These things were so enormous that even the country estates built by the aristocracy in the 18th century couldn't match them. Some had single rooms, just single rooms, that were about 2,500 square feet in size. Some dining rooms, which were fully heated and decorated and even had mosaics on the floors that would show famous literary moments from writers such as Virgil. Well, these dining rooms, which of course had dining tables, also had a dais for the principal high table where only the most powerful would eat. So even if you were important enough to be invited to dine at the villa, there would still be a hierarchy once you got there. But enough about how well the wealthy were doing in their Roman public towns and country villas. What about the rest of the Britons? Well, They went about forming a new sort of community called a small town. By this point in history, there were around 70 or 80 of them. And actually, they were all relatively near each other. And most of them were situated along Roman roads or rivers. Unlike the Roman public towns, which were intentionally created by the Romans upon their initial conquest, these towns were small, grassroots affairs. They were part of the local trading community and developed organically and they were generally unpretentious when you compare them to the public towns. These small towns provided the economic power that the islands so desperately needed, though, of course, the manufacturing and trade they produced were just local, and they didn't compare at all with the trade networks that existed in earlier periods. But at least we have some sort of economic activity in the island, rather than just wealthy consumers congregating in increasingly isolated towns. Now, being that they sprang into existence on their own rather than due to Roman implantation, these small towns generally lacked the ordered grid of streets, baths, aqueducts, forums, and heated buildings that were commonly found in public towns. But simply because they were communities developed by the Britons doesn't mean that the population wasn't Romanized. They were. And the homes they built reflect that although they were less aggressively Mediterranean than their public town counterparts. For example, while the buildings were rectangular, which was the Roman style, you'll recall that before the Romans, the buildings were generally oval or circular. Well, despite the fact that they were rectangular, they were often built out of wood and had thatch roofs. These were the materials of the Britons' ancient past. And of course, for that matter, they were the materials that were readily available. So the buildings in the small towns generally looked Roman, although they used British materials. On the other hand, though, generally the temples that were being built in these towns tended to be much more British in design than Roman. So maybe they weren't completely Romanized and were finding ways to stay connected to their past. Now, these small towns underwent what some scholars have referred to as strip development, with the main focus being the road that they were built along. What I mean by that is that most of the buildings, especially those that were located on a major road, would line the road and generally provide both commercial and residential space. The way it would work is that the front of the building would function as a shop or a workshop, and that could be open to the public so people could come in and buy goods and whatever, while the back of the building would provide accommodation for the craftsman or shop owner and his family. And then behind the building, there might be a vegetable garden and an animal pen. There might even be an oven. And some of the more successful towns might have even been able to provide a wall, or at least some sort of defensible structure towards the center of the small town. And some might have even had more romanized and extravagant temples. And then there were the small towns such as Bath, which even provided a few public buildings. Now, while we know about the administration of public towns and we know how there would be councils and elections and whatnot. We know next to nothing about the way that small towns were governed, or even if they were governed at all. They might have just been put together haphazardly and just kind of run as a collective, or everybody was out for themselves, or maybe they elected people. We really don't know. Anyway, these small towns... They might not seem that impressive to you, what with their wooden buildings and possible lack of a government and lack of any real defensive structure unless they were really lucky. But it wasn't the public towns that were keeping the economy in Britannia alive. It was the small towns and the insular pottery industry that had risen up. That's what was really keeping Britannia going. Now, as a result of all this urbanization, there was an increased demand for efficient food production. After all, urban life requires significant surpluses of rural food production. That's because urban populations simply cannot outgrow the capacity of the rural areas to feed them. If they do, it leads very quickly to starvation, and then the supply and demand is brought back into balance. So with all this urban growth, agriculture also went through... I suppose what you would call a reorganization at this point in history. And we begin to see agriculture industrializing and organizing under incredibly wealthy elites. These elites were bringing in new crops, experimenting with technology, and constructing new buildings. They were also bringing ever larger numbers of laborers under their control to grow and harvest the increasingly large crop yields and, of course, maximize profit. On the upside, the landowners were building granaries, buildings for large-scale baking of bread, slaughterhouses, cold storage, and all kinds of other buildings. So food production was being done on a scale that had never before been seen on the island. However, this also led to a greater concentration of wealth into the hands of those who already held so much. So this is another instance of the structural stratification that was occurring on Britannia. To put it another way, these industrialized agricultural zones were essentially the Monsantos of their time. They were juggernauts. They were able to produce so much more than everybody else. Now while there were certainly rather modest farms in Britannia as well during this period, and thanks to changes in technology and agriculture, they too were seeing an increase in productivity, but they weren't seeing anything on the scale of the estates. I mean, how could they? They just didn't have the resources. And consequently, the distance between the haves and the have-nots was solidifying. And here's the interesting thing: at no point in Romano-British history do we have a record of an indigenous Briton obtaining enough wealth to qualify for equestrian or senatorial status in Rome, which were the upper echelons of the Roman hierarchy. That should give you an idea of the sheer level of wealth that the Roman upper class enjoyed. I mean, considering how well the top echelon of the Romano-British lived, and even they weren't wealthy enough to get into the top levels of Rome, God, they must have been rich. Anyway, back to Britannia. So there was quite a divide between rich and poor in Britannia at this point. And that division would remain, even during the decline that began in the 360s. That decline, by the way, was due to increased barbarian raids and a collapsing economy. So now we're seeing a breakdown of the economy in Britannia. Consequently, country villas were starting to fall into disrepair, and some of the grand dining rooms that we've been speaking about were being converted into storerooms for grain and all manner of other uses, which suggests that dinner parties were becoming less common. So it looks like even the rich were having to tighten their belts at this point, or maybe there was a social breakdown, but my guess is chances are the rich were having to tighten their belts. And we're starting to see that some of the smaller villas were getting destroyed. But we can't know whether that was due to accident, barbarians, or intentional demolition. However, a clue to this mystery is the fact that the larger villas seemed to have more staying power and stuck around longer. So chances are the smaller ones were getting destroyed because people were running out of money. Now around this same time, the pottery industry that Britannia had worked so hard to create also went into steep decline and it would only take a single generation for it to become a lost art, actually. Iron production also tanked, which meant that suddenly nails and pots were hard to obtain. While you might manage to make do with the old family pot, nails were a much bigger issue. I know it doesn't seem like it, but really think about it. Without nails, building was suddenly much more difficult. But there were other effects that aren't as obvious as building. For example... How would you bury a loved one if you had no nails to build the coffin? How would you make a hobnailed boot without nails? The reduction in the iron industry would have caused a great deal of frustration for the Britons. And what of the small towns we've been speaking about? If people aren't spending money on pottery and goods, and traveling along Roman roads, how would the small towns support their status? Well, chances are they couldn't. Now, not all of Britannia collapsed. As I mentioned, the more affluent villas stuck around longer, and so did some small towns with decent defenses and public towns. But that isn't to say that they stayed on the same level. They didn't. Amenities disappeared, streets were encroached upon, and even the sewage system in some towns went into disrepair. All of this points to a lack of resources. The economy was just drying up. And on that note, I suppose now is as good a time as any to discuss defenses and what effect the stratification of Britannia had upon them. The defenses of public towns, and even some small towns, went through a revolution in the later 4th century due to the increase in trouble from barbarian raiders. Initially, there were earthen ramparts. But by this point, we're seeing stone walls and towers. And this boom in defensive construction really took off following the barbarian conspiracy. Now, projects like this weren't free. They required an immense expenditure of labor and resources. So where did the capital for that sort of project come from? Well, I can tell you that very little, if any, would have come from the central government, which was already overburdened by military costs dealing with the barbarian troubles throughout the empire. So again, where did the money come from? Well, it came from the locals. But here's the thing. The wealthy in the Roman Empire had already proven adept at avoiding paying taxes. So the burden for paying for these defenses would have fallen increasingly upon the peasant class. And as a result of all this, those ordinary workers would have probably found themselves in a situation where their ability to buy everyday goods had been compromised. And so they were going hungry in order to build defenses for the town. And the real tragedy of the situation is that many of the rebuilding programs we're talking about came on the heels of the barbarian conspiracy, meaning that those who survived the horrors of the barbarian invasions and almost certainly were not able to hide behind the high walls of the public towns were subjected to having their very limited resources seized at the moment when they were most vulnerable and could least afford it. Life during this time was brutal and unforgiving, especially if you weren't wealthy. Now, I'm guessing that while the defenses, farming, pottery, town layouts, taxes, and whatnot are interesting, what you really want to know about is what life for the Romano-Britons was like, and how did it change. You know, what did their day look like? Well, that's a tough one to talk about, actually, because we don't have any texts that directly discuss peasant life during this period. But we do have an archaeological record, And so through that, we can infer what life might have been like. So let's give it our best shot. So by this period in time, the diet of the average Briton was changing. Now diet is notoriously slow to change when compared to other portions of cultural change, especially amongst the peasantry. But by the 4th century, Britons were eating apples and putting cilantro on their food. Romanization of Britannia had been so effective that it even penetrated common British cuisine. And even the matter of preparing food was changing. For example, for most of British history, butchering had been done deftly with a sharp knife. But by this point in time, Britannia had adopted the Roman method of chopping through bones and joints with heavy implements. Now this is all important because it shows how complete the Romanization of the Britons has been. And this cultural exportation was so effective that even the pockets of Britannia where Romanization was resisted, such as in North Wales, where people still lived in round, thatch-roofed homes, we can find evidence of Roman goods from the 4th century. So everybody was buying into the Roman way of life, in one way or another. As for the people themselves, from what we found, the peasants lived grueling lives of hard labor, as demonstrated by the wear we found on their skeletons. Adults typically dealt with early-onset arthritis and back pain, and from the joint damage we've seen, they probably started heavy labor generally in adolescence, and the men would spend their lives doing things like lifting heavy objects, driving carts, and working plows. On the women, we see signs of wear and damage on their knees, indicating that they probably spent a great amount of time grinding corn at the Rotary. Now, I should probably pause for a minute for the benefit of my American listeners. In America, when I say corn, it's generally assumed that I'm talking about maize, which originated in the Americas and wouldn't reach Europe for about a thousand years. But for the context of this podcast, I'm saying corn in the same way it's used overseas and the way it was originally used. Corn describes cereal grains, typically wheat. So when I mention that the Celts grew corn, or that the Romano-Britons are grinding corn. I'm talking about cereal grains. Anyway, so life was hard for the Romano-British adult peasants. Lots of hard manual labor and whatnot. But the adults were the lucky ones. Child mortality was fairly high. And you'd think that it would be infant mortality that would be the big danger, since childbirth can be deadly stuff, not to mention the fact that infants are really fragile. But actually, the bulk of deaths didn't come from infants. But rather, it seems that toddlers were the most likely to die out of every childhood strata. And if any child survived, it was destined to grow slowly due to a poor diet and malnutrition. Not starvation, there was food, but it wasn't very nutritious. And that malnutrition would actually cause the children to physically lag behind their modern counterparts by as much as two years. But let's say you were a peasant, and you made it out of childhood. Well, you'd be pretty lucky, even though you'd be condemned to a life of malnutrition and back-breaking labor. Oh, and thanks to your terrible diet, you would also have light bones and bad teeth. Yes, yes, get your bad teeth and Britain's Snickers out of your system. And you would also be substantially shorter than your modern counterparts. Now compare this to the tall and physically formidable Celts that the Romans wrote about when they first invaded Britannia. It's hard to believe that this is basically the same group of people, isn't it? And it's only been several hundred years. Anyway, back to the Romano-British and how hard it was to survive. Well, as far as keeping your heart beating goes, if you made it out of childhood, you would probably be okay. Until you reach your 20s. Yeah, you heard that right, your 20s. Of all peasants who reached the age of 5, half of them would die between the age of 20 and 45, with many dying in their early 20s and 30s. That isn't to say that people didn't reach old age. Some did, and you certainly stood a better chance if you're amongst the upper class, but dying young was still much more likely than it is today. Meanwhile, it wasn't just hard living that was a danger to the Britons. They were also beset by small outbreaks of smallpox and tuberculosis. Oh, and also scurvy, gout, osteoporosis, ulcers of the legs, infertility, worms, as well as all the fun problems that worms can give you. The list goes on and on. But on the upside, they didn't have many of our modern maladies. Physical activity was much more important and obviously needed in those days than it is now. People walked places. Even the rich who could afford to be transported still walked much more than your average American. And the peasants don't even get me started on how much they exercised. Their whole lives were exercise. Consequently, these Britons, even the rich and lazy ones, generally had a higher level of physical fitness than many of us. I'll use myself as an example. Today I've spent the day finalizing research, checking my notes, and recording. All of this was done at my computer. With the exception of taking Kerouac for a walk, which isn't that far of a walk because, you know, he's got three legs, I haven't exercised at all. So despite the increased wear and tear, as well as the exposure to physical injury, there were some upsides to the level of manual labor that the average Briton endured. But I wouldn't say the good outweighed the bad. I'm just saying I'd rather live like I live now and just hit the gym rather than live like a Romano Briton. Oh, and there is one other benefit that I didn't mention about being a peasant. Well, with all the wealth concentration that occurred in Britannia following the occupation, it led to a new sort of ailment, gout, that was caused by an abundance of rich food. So if you're a peasant, your chances of getting gout were pretty low. Anyway... Basically, what I've been getting at here is that life in Romano-Britannia was pretty tough, and that to be a peasant in this period was to be short, malnourished, uncomfortable, and in pain. Between the worms, the arthritis, and the probable head lice, I'm guessing that everyone's nerves were wearing a little thin, and I doubt it was a very friendly and cheerful community. So thanks for that, Rome. But hey... At least we got Watling Street out of the deal, right? All right, well, that's it for today. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me. My email address is Podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me at the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, or join our conversation over at Facebook. You just go over to facebook.com slash British History. I've been doing daily updates on that side, actually, of Today in British History. So if you're at all interested in reading that, you can head on over and join the Facebook community. It's kind of fun. There's little facts of, you know, what was happening on this particular or that particular date. And if you're not into Facebook, you can head on over to the forums. Just go to the British slash forum and you can join the community there. And I think that's about it. Thanks for listening.